0: Hello, hello, hello! I am so... Are you excited? Yes! Has it been an amazing conference? Do, do Do you know what made it amazing? You. Yeah, no, really. Yeah, we did some stuff, but you made it amazing too. So give yourselves a hand. We are going to have a revolutionary conversation with two amazing women who share the same birthday. Um, it's, a, it's kind of like fangirly for me right in here because Ruby Sales is like my mama, okay? And Marianne Williamson is like my friend. So to have these two extraordinary leaders in the world uh, giving us this conversation is gonna be amazing. Marianne Williamson is New York Times bestselling author all kind of best-selling authors. She's going to come and speak to us first. Um, Ruby and I are gonna have a conversation after that. And then the three of us, holler, are gonna have the revolutionary conversation. Marianne Williamson, please come, come.
1: so much. This is a homecoming for me. Uh, Jackie Lewis being, as she said, such a friend to me, my having spoken at this church for quite a while, having lived in New York for the last few years, and of course the fact that we are in a church, we are speaking about this topic in a church. You know, for years, sometimes you go someplace and people say, we're not going to talk about politics or religion, okay? And I'm so like, that so leaves me out at dinner. So the fact that we are in a church, we are speaking in this sacred place, you know, Gandhi said that politics should be sacred. And he didn't mean it should be religious, as in dogma, but he meant that it should be experienced from the deepest part of ourselves. And he said that the leader of the Indian independence movement is the small, still voice within So the idea of the intersection of spirituality and politics is not new. Gandhi articulated the principles of nonviolence, the idea that there is love within each of us and light within each of us, within every man, woman, and child, which could not only heal our personal relationships but our political and social relationships as well. Dr. King, of course, traveled to India studied the principles of nonviolence, and brought them back to apply them to the struggle for civil rights in the United States in the 1960s. So this emergent impulse of a political activism rooted in spiritual mindset and experience is not new. It had gone underground for a while, and it is reemerging, and not a moment too soon. We, of course, all realize that Dr. King and Gandhi were the two greatest and two of the most successful political figures of the 20th century. And so for us to look at the principle that we have to be that change that we want to see in the world, that as Dr. King said, we must have quantitative changes in our circumstances, but also qualitative changes in our souls, is an important part of what we are all embracing at conferences like this and all of the work that all of us in our own way are involved in at this moment. It is a particularly critical time in American history because something that is happening that energetically is not new. Energetically, it is something very, very old that has been with us as a nation from the beginning. We had in the signing of the Declaration of Independence the men who signed that declaration risking their lives to do so because if they had been, if they had lost the Revolutionary War, they would have been executed as traitors. So, on one hand, they risked their lives to infuse into the Declaration of Independence the most enlightened principles that had ever formed the founding of a nation, that all men are created equal, that God gave all men unalienable rights of life, of liberty, and of the pursuit of happiness, and that governments were instituted among men to secure those rights. Now, on one hand, it doesn't get more enlightened than that. On the other hand, 41 of them, as we know, were slave owners. So from the very beginning of our founding, we have embodied, and we have embodied it generation after generation, no less in ours, ladies and gentlemen, than in any other time. This dichotomy, this tension, this struggle between those of us whose hearts are ablaze with the possibilities that emerge from the recognition and devotion to the idea that all men are created equal, all men are given by God the right to pursue their happiness, and that the role of government is to help them do so, to secure the right to do that. There have been those, once again, in our generation, no less than in any others, those whose hearts are ablaze with that possibility, and those in 1776, and even today, whose basic attitude is, we will not be doing that. Now, the narrative of American history is that every generation writes its own chapter in this this continuing novel of our history. And over time, we do tend to get it right. Over time. As we know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So on one hand, the United States has always been aspiring to and the holder of the most enlightened principles and sometimes the most violent transgressors against them. But we answered slavery with abolition. We answered the oppression of women with two major waves of feminism and the women's suffragette movement. We answered white supremacy and institutionalized white supremacy and segregation in the American South with the civil rights movement. Today, once again, once again, a generation of Americans is confronted by a challenge to the basic foundational principles of our nation. In 1776, this country was founded to repudiate an aristocracy. An aristocracy is where only a few people are deemed entitled. Only a few people are entitled, they were, to the land. Only a few people were entitled to education. Only a few people were entitled to wealth and wealth creation. Only a few people were entitled to self-actualization in material terms. Everybody else was little more than a serf serving them. With the founding of this country, we lay claim to a different vision not that just a few people would be entitled, not that just a few rich people would be entitled, but that we are all entitled. It's called democracy. It's not just our right, it is our responsibility to foster it in our time and to bequeath it to our children. It is patriotism that makes us want to do that. We are not the first generation to have to face this stuff. Let's just not be the first one to wimp out on doing what it takes to get this country back on track. Now, those of us who are grounded in love know that love is not superficial. We know that love is fierce, and we know that love is honest. If you're a Catholic, you go to confession. When you are a Jew, every, <laughs> haven't been in a while, have you? <clears throat> Jews on the holiest day of the year in Judaism is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, followed by uh, uh, preceding that are the days of awe, the days of repentance. And in 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, people are told that they must take a fearless moral inventory and admit the exact nature of their wrongs. uh, Abraham Lincoln, in a proclamation of fasting and prayer in 1865, said that a nation, too, must confess its sins. I've had a 35-year career as Jackie has had this career, as so many of us, I'm sure, in this room have had careers, where people come to us with wounded hearts, come to us sometimes when we're in crisis. And yet what those of us who are clergy, spiritual teachers, counselors, therapists, whatever, have experienced, and of course, we've all experienced it in our own lives, is that sometimes when you are most stripped naked, Sometimes when all the illusions are gone you've lost your spouse, you've lost your money, your kids are on drugs, you're going bankrupt, you just got a cancer diagnosis, somebody that you love died. Sometimes it's in those moments of crisis that in the first five minutes all the superficial unimportant things just fall away and you have no option but to be really honest with yourself. People come to me for healing. They know what they're going to hear me say. I'm going to say some form of, what'd you do? And they're going to say, oh, no, 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 it was 90% what the bank did. It was 90% what she did. She ran off with my my best friend. It was 90% what that school did. No, 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 no. Let's talk about the 10% that's theirs. And the way I look at the United States today, we have some healing to do, but we will not heal unless we do the same thing as a nation that we must do as individuals in order to heal. We must stop with the superficial conversation. We must stop with the politics of just treating the symptoms and not looking at the cause. We must stop with the politics that just waters the leaves and never gets around to the roots. America must take a deep look if we are to heal. Where are we and where are we not who we say we are? Where are we and where are we not standing on the principles that we believe in? Where are we and where are we not facing some serious moral and economic debts? And where are we and where are we not more harbingers of war than harbingers of peace? I'm running for the presidency of the United States because I'm articulating that conversation. And contrary to a traditional political establishment, that disempowers people and turns them into followers I'm interested, as are all spiritual practitioners, in empowering people and turning them into leaders. And at a time such as this in America, if a political system is failing in its job of having the real conversation and taking the real actions that are necessary in order for this country to move forward, it is the responsibility of this generation of Americans to step in, to intervene, and take it from here. And that, we cannot do without having a very serious conversation about American capitalism. When I was young, when I was a child, it was understood. It was the social contract that was accepted in America that the corporation had a responsibility, a moral responsibility, an ethical responsibility to the workers and to the community and to the environment. The primary architect of free market capitalism, Adam Smith himself said that free market capitalism could not thrive outside an ethical context. But 40 years ago, something changed in America. A lot of money was put into the candidates and the propaganda that allowed it to happen. It was a trickle-down economic theory, which goes like this. The corporation should not have an ethical or moral responsibility to the workers and so forth. Rather, the corporation has one responsibility and one responsibility only. And that is a fiduciary responsibility to its stockholders. That's it. And that concept of market forces untethered to any ethical foundation has not only become the organizing system of our society economically, but because of the nefarious and undue influence of money on our government, especially since the Citizens United decision, but even at work before that, our government has become handmaiden to this economic theory. The theory, of course, was that all of that money would trickle down, you see. It would lift all boats. That money trickling down and lifting all boats has left, instead, millions of people without even a life vest. It has destroyed the American middle class it has left us at a point where 40% of all Americans struggle just to make the basic ends meet of food and of rent and of transportation and of health. There was a time in this country and there needs to be a time again and the very fact that this conference exists means that everybody here understands this, that kind of economic injustice is a moral issue. There are millions of Americans, there are millions of Americans that don't know how they can retire with dignity. They do not know how they are going to send their children to college. They would just like to be able to take their families out to dinner every once in a while while the people who are gaining the greatest economic largesse from this imbalance worry about nothing more than their stock options.
2: <clears throat>
1: now, I believe in capitalism with a conscience and, uh, and there are some very, very powerful corporate leaders, capitalist leaders in our country today. Ray Dalio, Jeremy Grantham, John Mackey has been talking about conscious capitalism for a long time. There are major corporate leaders in America who now realize this has gone too far. This has gone too far. It has created such an imbalance as to actually mean that we have reverted from a democracy to an aristocratic system. Wealth is good. The the problem is not that people can make money in America. The problem is that today not enough people can make money in America. The problem is not that some people are wealthy. There are many people in America who have created great amounts of wealth in a righteous way. There is a difference between wealth and aristocracy. Aristocracy is when your government performs in such a way through corporate subsidies. I love how Martin Luther King used to say, if they give it to rich people, they call it a subsidy. If they give it to poor people, they call it a handout. So an aristocracy is when the government behaves in such a way as to make it easier for people who already have a lot of money to make more money And harder, for those who hardly even have any, to even make it at all. Once again, that's when it's time for the people to step in. Now, when an individual has no sense of moral or ethical responsibility to other people, what do we call that person? We call them a sociopath. And so when your economic system displays no concern, whatever happens, the people in Flint, sorry about the water. Whatever happens to all those indigenous tribes in Latin America, sorry about that. You know, Exxon was doing whatever was was, or whatever. An economic system that displays no sense of moral or ethical responsibility to other people is a sociopathic economic system. We must look at this. We must not look away and the spiritual and the religious community. You had the crucifixion before you had the resurrection. If you don't look at the crucifixion, you're not in positivity. You're not in transcendence. You're in denial. There was the crucifixion before there was the resurrection. There was the slavery in Egypt before the Jews were delivered to the promised land. And Buddha looked at suffering up close before he was able to begin his journey to enlightenment. The religious path is not one in which we deny, in a negative sense, the the forces of lovelessness, but we practice positive denial in that we deny their power over us. And that is because, as Martin Luther King said, there is a power in us that is greater than the power of bullets. There was no reason for the abolitionists to think that they could ever abolish slavery. There was no reason to think that the women suffragettes could actually gain for women the right to vote. And there was no reason to think that segregation could be overturned and dismantled in the American South. You don't do things because they're reasonable. You do things because they're right. There are three main areas where I believe myself as a person whose politics are grounded in spirituality, and now as a presidential uh, candidate, my political platform is grounded in spirituality, and which I hope that more and more people who are practitioners and lovers of justice from a spiritual perspective will involve themselves in three main pillars of the depth of conversation and change without which I believe America will not have a moral or a spiritual awakening. First of all, we have millions of American children who go to school every day in schools that do not even meet minimum safety requirements, many of which do not even have functioning toilets. These children, many of them, go to school hungry, We have 41 million people who are food insecure in the United States. Obviously, many of them are hungry. Many of them are children. These children, many of them, millions of them, go to schools that do not have the adequate school supplies needed to teach a child to read. If a child cannot read by the age of eight, that child has a drastically diminished chance of graduating from high school. And that child has a drastically increased chance of incarceration. These millions of children live in chronic trauma. Psychologists tell us that they experience a a form of PTSD that is no less severe than the PTSD that is experienced by a returning veteran from Iraq in a war, because they too live in a war zone. They live in a domestic war zone where the violence in their families, in their streets, in their neighborhoods, and even their schools is so great that whereas for a returning veteran, it is post-traumatic for these children, it is present traumatic. This is a humanitarian crisis in our midst. The political system does not, it simply normalizes the despair of these children. We should be rescuing these children no differently than we would if they were victims of a natural disaster. But they're not old enough to vote so they're not a constituency and they're not old enough to work so they have no financial leverage. So in a system where the government has become little more than a system of legalized bribery, how are these children possibly supposed to be able to compete with the clout of the corporate forces whose millions and billions of dollars flood our Congress and our White House every year? Once again, The political system isn't doing it. It is time for the people to intervene. This is why, when I talk on my campaign trail, I talk about how we need a United States Department of Children and Youth. Our future in this country... Our future in this country and in this world will not emerge from having greater weapons It will emerge from having greater understanding of each other. And it will not emerge from the energy we find in the ground or even from green energy if you want to see the energy that would fuel the most amazing economy and the most amazing society in the next 25, 50, 75, and 100 years, if you want to see the real brilliance of this country, and if you want to see the real entrepreneurial spirit of this country, I'll tell you where to go to any kindergarten in any neighborhood in this country. That is where our gold is. That is where our energy is. We now know things about the brain of a child that is 10 years old and younger, so beyond anything that anyone in this room can even aspire to at this point. And yet we're the only advanced country that bases primarily the, 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 the majority of our educational funding on property taxes. So that means that if a child won the birth lottery in terms of the economic circumstances of his or her parents, you stand a really good chance of getting a very fine public education in America. But if you didn't win the birth lottery in economic terms, that's really too bad. At what point do you think that the traditional political system that created this situation has any plans for fixing it? Americans should not. fools. Secondly, for me, America will not have the kind of healing and transformation that we need without taking a fierce and honest and authentic look at race in America. I don't think that the average American is racist. I don't. But I do believe that the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race in the United States, particularly since the Civil War. I have traveled, I spoke about this in Cleveland last night. I've spoken about it quite extensively in Iowa and New Hampshire, two of the most, two of the whitest states in the United States. And I'm gonna tell you something in a couple of minutes that might surprise you. Most Americans don't know, I don't think, the actual history. They don't know that in 1865, at the end of the Civil War, there were between four and five million slaves in the United States, and that Tecumseh Sherman, promise to those slaves, to every slave family of four, former slave family of four, what we all know, but maybe we haven't really thought about deeply what it would have meant, 40 acres and a mule. If you had been a slave, you certainly had a skill set, but you're freed, but as Martin Luther King would say later, what are you freed to? You have to make a living now. You've got to have a life. 40 acres and a mule would have allowed you to do it. The federal troops remained stationed in the American South until 1877. And during that time, interestingly enough, there were a lot of black people elected to office and all kinds of good things. And I also believe if Lincoln had lived, things might have been different. I think they would have been different. As it turns out, very few were given that acreage, even those who were given it, most of the, in most cases, it was taken away. In 1877, once the federal troops left, southern legislatures throughout the South passed what were called the Black Code Laws. The black code laws were to ensure that there would be subpar political, social, and economic opportunities for former slaves, for blacks, and for their descendants. At that time, after two and a half centuries of slavery, there followed 100 years of what we would call today a reign of domestic terror. What do you call lynchings, if not domestic terrorism? What do you call Ku Klux Klan? if not domestic terrorism. By the year 1900, there was fully formed, institutionalized white supremacy in the American South and segregation, none of which was fundamentally responded to until the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King in the 1960s. 100 years after the end of the Civil War, we passed the Civil Rights legislation. With the Civil Rights Act of 1964, We dismantled the externalities of segregation, and with the Voting Rights Act, 1965, granted blacks full rights to vote. 2013, John Roberts began chipping away at the Voting Rights Act. At that point, all these voter suppression efforts began around the country, and we know who they're mainly aimed at. In addition to that, Situations such as mass incarceration, racial disparity, and sentencing, etc., means that in many ways we're sliding backwards. I don't want to minimize the struggles, sacrifices, or successes of any of our ancestors, black or white. But ladies and gentlemen, as much as the, the successes of the past have been honored, it is also important, I believe, as a nation, if we're to heal, to take an honest look at where we are today economic restitution is something we simply never got around to yet. Since the the end, end of the World War II, Germany has paid $89 billion in reparations to Jewish organizations. It can't make the Holocaust not have happened, but it has gone far towards reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Germany and the rest of Europe. I believe that since that war was over in 1945 and we can see that you now have a generation of young Germans for whom so much of the karmic guilt and toxicity has been flushed out because that country has sought to do the right thing. We, however, are still living the Civil War having ended in 1865, handing generation to generation, still passing on this horror, this this guilt, this toxicity of racial tension and anxiety. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to do the next step, to take the next step, to do the right thing for our children, for our grandchildren. I hope you will do what every audience I have talked to about this in Iowa has done and in New Hampshire and in Cleveland, Ohio, when I have said it is time to pay reparations for slavery. I hope you will applaud as they do. It's so obvious by your reaction and other things that are happening around the country that this is an idea whose time has come. The third and last pillar I'd like to bring up for your attention. And you know, those of us who come at these things from a religious or spiritual perspective also, I love this line from Gandhi. He said, anybody who doesn't think religion has anything to do with politics doesn't understand religion. <clears throat> also, when he was asked, you're such a religious man, how could you be involved with politics? He said, Does not politics is not politics a part of Dharma too? All that a nation is is a group of individuals. So the same psychological and spiritual and moral and emotional principles that prevail within the journey of an individual prevail within the life of a nation. In Judaism, in the Talmud, the book of wisdom, it is said, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. You are not obligated to complete the task, but neither are you free to abandon it. The third pillar where I feel that we have a great need to refuse to abandon the task has to do with the creation of a world without war. You know, when I was in college, I was so in love with the line from Teilhard de Chardin, the French philosopher who said that someday, after man has mastered the winds and the tides and gravity, we will harness for God the energies of love. And then he said, for the second time in human history, mankind will have discovered fire. When I was a young woman, I thought that was so beautiful but aspirational. What I realize now is that it's not just aspirational. It's a necessity if we are to survive. You don't just take medicine, do you? You have to cultivate health. Because health is the, sickness is the absence of health. Health is not the absence of sickness. And the same thing with war and peace. You can't just prepare for war. You're not going to just back up into peace. You can't just prepare for war. You have to wage peace. The traditional political establishment ain't going to talk about it, isn't it? And it's not for the reasons that we know. We know we don't have universal health care because, God forbid, it should cut into the profits of the health insurance companies and big pharma. We don't have reasonable gun safety legislation because, God forbid, it should cut into the profits of the gun manufacturers. We don't fight the climate crisis the way we need to because, God forbid, it should cut into the profits of the fossil fuel companies, and we do not wage peace on this planet the way we need to because, God forbid, it should cut into the profits of military defense contractors. Once again, it's time for the people to step in. For every dollar that the United States spends on waging peace, we spend over $1,000 on ways to prepare for war, even though that dollar waging peace is far more efficacious. There are four main factors with which we wage peace. And when these factors are present, statistically, the evidence is clear. A society, a community has greater peace and less conflict and violence, none of these factors will surprise anyone here. Number one, expand economic opportunities for women. Number two, expand educational opportunities for children. Number three, reduce violence against women. And number four, diminish human suffering wherever possible. We should see large groups of desperate people as a national security risk because desperate people do desperate things. Desperate people are more vulnerable to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces, whether it's a corner of the United States city where they are vulnerable to gangs, whether it is a corner of the world where they are more vulnerable to terrorist organizations, or anywhere in the United States where they are vulnerable to the machinations of an authoritarian demagogue. (laughs) And yet, once again, Our, just as our economic agenda is not run according to planning for economic vibrancy 10 years from now, if our economy was run according to, had an agenda of planning for economic vibrancy 10 years from now, we would be doing more for our 10 year olds today. Which is why we need a massive realignment of investment in the direction of our children 10 years old and younger. And similarly, we do not have a national security agenda, which is based on achieving and creating peace 50 years from now. It is, just chi- it is based on how are we going to be prepared for 21st century wars. And that is because all of the things that I said to you that actually create peace make no corporate profits. These are not easy conversations, but they are the conversations which we must have. And they're the conversations which we cannot rely on a traditional political establishment to bring up because the traditional political establishment got us into this ditch. To think that they are the only qualified people to get us out of that ditch just shows how mentally trained we have been. We have not been trained to be leaders. We have not been, in, you go to church, synagogue, mosque. You go, you do your spiritual practice to, be, to become a leader, to become empowered. We have a traditional political establishment which has trained, which has disempowered us and trained us to be followers. That is changing now because when we are devoted, as other generations before us have been devoted, to look down the road and to ask what? Where, where will this go if we continue like this? That's the, that's the theme of this evening, where now? Well, the first thing we gotta look is if we continue the way we're going, your eyes are opened to horror. Everything we do has consequences. And we are now on a trajectory which has to do with the erosion of our democracy, the erosion of our moral and spiritual principles, and the erosion of our deep human values. Not as individuals, I think Americans are good people, I do. We're good, we're not better than other people, but we're certainly no worse. We're dignified and we're decent, and I believe the average American wants to do the right thing. But we have stopped too often to think about doing the right thing collectively. And I believe the church and synagogue and the mosque, et cetera, is where we should be doing this. We're living at a time where fear has been turned into a political force. We must turn love into a political force. More people in this country love than fear, but those who fear, fear with conviction. And conviction is a force multiplier. Fear has been harnessed, Fear has been become effective, fear has become active, and fear has become organized. It is time and conferences like this bring it about for love to become active, for love to become convicted, and for love to become organized. Enough, the period of data collection is over. The period of just talking about it is over. It is time for this generation to rise up in a way that other generations have risen up before us and been very, very clear. And every black person knows this, and every Jew knows this. It's something fierce that comes up when you know you're standing in front of certain forces, and something in you comes up strong. And the message is this You did it to my grandparents, and you're not gonna do it to my kids. And just in closing, let me make this very clear. This is out of love for our country. This is nothing but patriotism that we're talking about here. The level of audacity that is necessary now, the level of ability to rise up and remember that we are the people, To remember that the principles of equality and that this is to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, that we cannot afford for it to just be inscribed in marble walls or on parchment behind glass somewhere. It has to be alive in the hearts of every generation. In the Jewish religion, it says every generation must discover God for itself. I believe every generation must discover God for itself, and every generation of America must, re- must discover for ourselves the radicalism of democracy, the radicalism of love, to be willing to put our feet behind our prayers, and to rise up in our time as others have risen up behind us, and to have the power <coughs> to say yes to new beginnings, and hell no to some things that need to stop right here. That is what, to me, love does. Thank you, very, very, good. thank you.
2: Um,
0: Marianne Williamson, everybody. Let's, let's everybody. let's everybody take a deep breath and take in all the... take just Everybody take a deep breath. I just whispered to Marianne's, when you're producing a conference, you know, like every 15 minute counts. So we had a 30-minute talk and we got a 35, wonderful, rich, beautiful talk. And now we're going to take another deep breath. Dionne's going to give us a little music to... To transition by, and the next voice we hear is going to be Mama, Ruby, my mentor, sales.
3: <laughs>
4: Where's your
5: mic? Where's your mic? Oh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amen. 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 My 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 Detroit Jewish preacher and now my Southern Freedom Spiritual Movement Preacher. Ruby, sales.
5: Can I just say something about that song? You can, please do. Every time I hear that song, I see my grandmother, Ola Free Sells' face, sitting in Shiloh Baptist Church in Jemison, Alabama, singing, come and go with me to that land where I'm bound. My grandmother was born in 1865. She stood five feet one inches tall. Taller than you. She stood back in her legs. And when she was eighty years old, and I would come to visit her every summer, she would walk me ten miles to the post office. My grandmother was much of a woman. Come and go with me to that land. That song was created by a community not of slaves, but a community of enslaved people who were held captive and and surveilled in sites of militarized and paramilitarized sites of terror called plantations. And in those sites of terror, they fashioned a living theology and a social-spiritual vision of agape and nonviolence. I love everybody in my heart, they said. I love everybody. I'm going to lay down my weapons by the riverside and study war no more. Amen, my amen. grandmother, Ola Freesales.
0: Ola Free Sales. So guys, I'm going to tell you something. Ruby has been here a long time today, and I have to. <laughs> so we might be tired, huh, Ruby?
5: I'm tired. You're <laughs> <We're>
0: tired, yeah. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to dive in and, and try to pick up a conversation that we were having the other day yes. in my office. And I think it dovetails on what what we just what just got on the table I mean, Marianne puts three pillars on the table. kind of education for urban kids is the way I took it. Education for kids. Um, OK, I'm staying awake. Two was reparations, reparations. And three was, study war, no more. right? No more right. war. Right. So
5: first of all, yeah. I understand that in a materialized society we view reparations as simply economic reparations. But all the money in the world will not change a corrupt system unless we have a transformation of values. People just get money, buy things, and nothing changes in the society. So reparations must be a, a spirit, socio-spiritual movement that not only repairs the economic harm, but it must also begin to restore our common humanities and rearrange our relationship with God, each other, and all aspects of creation. It must be a justice reparation. Amen, thank you Ruby, thank you.
0: So, so, let's, so let's talk about that a little more, love, because I was really loving the way we were talking about that the other day. I felt like you were making a connection between reparations and redemption, like oh, uh, yes. could you do that? Can we? I just, I'm just gonna ask good questions, and then she's just gonna be brilliant. Uh,
5: yeah. Well, that's a very good question. Right. As we were saying yesterday, the other day, we both got carried away yeah. with the whole notion of redemption, right. And reparations, or else restoration yeah. and redemption and reparations. And re- so three R's: restoration, three R's. redemption
0: and reparations. Let's lay that out a little bit.
5: First of all. Movements are not acts of retribution. Movement predicates itself on hopefulness, on the belief that none of us are entrapped in moral nihilism, that none of us are doomed to live without being able to change. So movements predicate themselves on the notion that we can be in a process, in a dynamic process, toward a higher level of consciousness, and that movements by nature are redemptive. They provide opportunities. They they are hopeful. And so we have been witnessing right before our eyes movements that are becoming, asking for retribution and not justice. And although it seems to be a radical call, to bring people down because they did something when they were 25 years old. Although that seems like justice, it really curates white supremacy. It's vigilante justice. It predicates itself on a cynicism that no one can change. And if we're gonna get really cynical, then black folks should be the most, and and indigenous people should be the most cynical people in the world. And we should never believe that white people can ever change. But we don't believe that because we believe that, 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 that movements must provide a clearing. Clearing. A clearing straight to the kingdom of God on earth and straight to our highest capacity. Yeah. It must call upon us. It must be fueled by revolutionary love. And by that, I mean that we must see in others the good that they fail to see in themselves. And we must be willing to provide opportunities to have them to reach that goodness. Anytime you start a movement with saying that someone is not worthy, then you're just as guilty as an empire. And if you begin a movement on unworthiness, the society that you create will, predicate, will curate the very thing that you said you fought against. Mm-hmm. So we need to be very careful about this unredemptive anger. Yes, a man made a pass at me when I was 18 years old, and maybe he touched me inappropriately, but that, does that mean that at 60, I'm going to call him out and say he can not that he hasn't changed? Am I going to say a white person made a racist remark, yesterday is incapable of changing tomorrow? If we continue to do that, Gandhi makes it very clear. An eye for an eye leaves us all blind. That's so beautiful.
0: And Ruby, the other day, like when we, were, when we had this conversation, I feel like I'm, I'm saying to you, I'm saying mama.
5: Yes, okay. daughter.
0: I'm saying mama. <laughs> how, how, we, how we forgive. How do how we forgive? And this thing you say that really blows my mind is you talk about the, the, the African person, the enslaved African person, who had not had the freedom of their own body, right. who did not have the freedom of their own volition, the freedom of movement, but the one thing that they had that no one could take away was their inner life, their, their soul. Their inner life, Talk absolutely. about that, that just blows my mind. I had, I had power over my own soul to not let that corrupt my own soul. Right?
5: You might invade my body, you might put me in chains, you might hold me captive, you might commodify me, you might vilify me, you might rape me, but you cannot invade my inner life unless I give you a ticket to, to, to it. And so what black people did during enslavement they looked at what a corrosive inner life, spiritual malformation had created in terms of enslavement. And they wanted an alternative, and they knew that they could not choose a, 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 an alternative that was harsh and brittle and unforgiving. So what they said to they so they sang this song that I sing all the time. I love everybody, I love everybody in my heart. That was not the sounds of a stupid people. And you can't make me hate you, and you can't make me hate you in my heart. You can't make me become corrosive like you. I will make sure that I do not become weighted down by hate. And because of that, I will not allow you to take up residence in my consciousness and in my spirit and you will not allow, I will not allow you to make me walk around weighted down with anger. Because once I allow you to do that, you have become my significant other. You are my significant other.
0: Doesn't that just make your eyes wet? I'm thinking earlier today, one of the good things about sitting in all these sessions is I get to connect the dots, uh, Lisa said, and some other folks said too, but this idea that if we read the Gospels, Ruby, if we read the the sort of teachings of Jesus from the location of a colonized, brown, poor person, then suddenly the Gospel message is different. It's, uh, it's, turn the other cheek, it's like, I'm adding to what Lisa's saying now, it's like the resistance is actually believing in the redemption the possibility of redemption for the other.
5: Does that make sense? That makes a whole lot of sense, but I want to add another Jesus, twist please. to that. Mm-hmm. It's not only reading the gospel, the thing about it is that the gospel is good news for everyone no matter our social location. Mm-hmm. And so it's reading the gospel from, from the standpoint of those who are, pure, who are suffer from a poverty of spirit, poor in spirit. And the culture of whiteness calls upon white, reduces white people to one identity, I say this over and over, and that's skin. Just white skin, not gender, not sexuality, not ethnicity, but skin. And by reducing you to one identity, that makes you commit soul murder because our souls are a combination of all of our identities. It is the deepest part of who we are as people. And so that by doing that, that the, 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 the devastating dehumanization of white people in a culture of whiteness that caused them to operate from spiritual malformation of poverty of spirit the good news is, is that to read the God, the good news is that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they shall be a part of God's creative revolution. Right. And so that I think that we all must understand that it's not just about black and brown people, it's also about everyone who has been contaminated by the cult of whiteness and the culture of whiteness. And let's be very clear, whiteness is a cult. It is idolatry. It requires us to bow down and worship at the altars of men who think that they are gods on Earth, who have convinced Europeans all the way back to the monarchy of the divine rights of kings, that they were chosen by God to have dominion and to subjugate ordinary Europeans, and that they were not only divinely called to rule, but also to gobble up all of the resources and make ordinary Europeans labor poorly. And not only that, to then sacrifice to tell you that your interests, that tell your ancestors that their interests, that the monarch's interests, was their interest, under the false notion of something called nationalism, that the good of the nation, which was really the good for the monarchy, was the good of the people. And then with that, with further audacity, convincing people to sacrifice their sons at the altar of war for the monarchy. My friends, generations are being abused and misused and lied to and I ask you where does it hurt? The good news, the gospel is good news for all of us. Blessed are the poor in
0: spirit for they shall obtain the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit will become citizens of the reign of
5: God. Jackie, where do you see the poor in spirit? Where do you as you in your ministry, where do you find that? Where do you see that? Because it's not just with, with white Americans, no, it's, it's also it's all, with all of us. Oh, where do you it's see so it? So
0: many places, Ruby. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes I feel like I'm 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 don't mean to be to me dramatic, but sometimes I feel like I'm standing at a, at a center of a vortex of poor in spirit, that poor in spirit is, you know, a, a a couple that's been married for a really really long time, and then finally, and then one of the partners dies, and the and the other one's identity is just oh, like, who am I now that I'm not that person's partner? Like that's like that's at a personal level, just like broken hearted. I've in in a kind of. Um, I find the poor in spirit, the mother who's, who has to spend all of her money to pay for her kindergartner to take tests so they can get into a good school. That 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 person is poor in spirit, like kind of a part of an empire system that says you can't just live anywhere and go to a good school. Or my trans brothers and sisters who... Are somehow totally marginalized in the LGBTQIA um, equation, or the I'm going to say the um, the the Jewish uh, activist who really wants to stand with Women's March but might feel that that's not Jewish enough for some of their colleagues, um, or the Muslim activist who is pro-Palestinian and feels somehow that that sits them in a marginalized space. I mean, Ruby, there's so much pressure, this was my sermon this morning, for purity of identity, for just like purity of identity, purity of ideology, I am your people and that's it, that I think everywhere we step out and we're too little this and too little
5: that is a
0: poor spirit place. Does that resonate
5: with y'all? Does that make sense what I'm saying? It makes a lot of sense. And I I, I really do think that it's really important for us to step back for a moment Mm
2: -hmm.
5: and to look at this whole question of purity. White supremacy is racial purity. Misogyny is male purity. And although, as I say, I want to repeat this, As I hear, let me just go really deep and and do what Linda Sarsour said this morning. Sometimes we got to go in uncomfortable places in order to locate the truth. And I want to just talk a little bit about me too. I'm an African-American woman who grew up during Southern apartheid where black men and black women were lynched. And many black men were lynched because white women falsely accused them of rape. Many black men, thousands of black men were lynched because white women falsely accused them of rape. And they didn't get a chance to tell their story. They didn't have a date in court. The mob came for them at night in front of their children and their fat wives and they dragged them out of their houses and took them to jail, and broke them out of jail the next day, and brought their sons and their little daughters to watch black men be lynched. And they not only lynched black men, but they also castrated them, committed grave sex crime, all because of a lie that the black men... So when you ask me to accept that every time a woman says she's been raped, that I must believe her, Without, hearing the, without giving the man the opportunity to have his day in court, then you're asking me to eradicate my history so that I can let white women feel f- comfortable. The truth of the matter is black women cannot accept, because to accept that is to, say that to sanction the historical murder of black men who were lynched on a lie. Emmett Till, how many know, Jesse Washington, over and over and over again, in the Legacy Museum in Montgomery. If you walk through that museum, you see the, 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 the memorials to thousands of black men who were, who were lynched, and the proponents of them were lynched on a lie. So how do we grapple with this history that we want to give credibility to women's voices when they say that they've been raped or been violated. But how do we navigate the fact that history is not a dialectic, that it happens simultaneously? That even though that is also true, that women, that women should be believed, it's also true that there should be a of suspicion. How do we deal with that? What do we do with that? Do you ask me, a black woman, to erase my history? Do you ask me to, to forget that black men also raped black women? That they were also victims and predators? Just like white, men, white women were victims and predators, and white men were predators, and black women were enablers. That's the history that we got to grapple with. Black women enabled black men who raped their daughters. That's the history that we've got to grapple with. How do we deal with the complexities of history without getting locked into purity tests where we destroy each other?
0: Ruby, this is what it's like to sit with Ruby, right? Right?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, this is how it goes. This is hard (laughs) stuff, this is hard stuff. stuff. That's right. This is not easy, but you know what? It's not easy. But this is where we come out on the end of it. It's not easy, it's hard, but what do we do? We find hope in history. We find hope in history because we, it, history tells us that there are hundreds of people of all colors who broke with the culture of whiteness, who broke with the culture of misogyny, who, bro- who broke with the culture of heterosexism, and we're willing to pay the price for a ride on the Freedom Train. And so, we do not need to feel hopeless because it's hard. We just have to look at the stories and ask how did they do it? And what might we learn from the stories? And we must understand that a nation that dying on lies will choke to death on lies. Ooh. A nation that died on lies choked will choke to death. America is in the need of resuscitation because it's choking to death. So
0: Ruby, let's talk about, so I mean there's a lot of threads out there right now like the idea of redemption and restoration, yes. um, uh, the idea of reparations. Crucifixion. And crucifixion. Can we, we just, let's, let's, let's talk about black folks' religion, which I think is where, don't you want to go to that land?
5: Yes. Okay,
0: let's talk about black folks. Let's talk about black folks' religion. You know, hone in this, you know, yes, brought across the ocean, but hone in this land. What? What is that? What makes us march across that bridge over and over again? What, talk, talk about that.
5: I've got a right. You've got a right. I've got a right to the tree of life. Can you imagine a community of enslaved people who people have tried to reduce to to property, asserting their right to the fruits of democracy, asserting their rights as children of God. So black folk theology is a theology of audacity. It blends the impulse for freedom with the aspirations of democracy. It is a spiritual, I would say a social spiritual movement. And and before, let me just say something. Black folk theology was not founded in the black church. It was not founded by black people who who could read or write. It happened in those sites of terror in the fields among ordinary black folk who could not read or write because reading and writing, not because they were stupid and and unable to read and write, but because it was a capital punishment. If you read, so we had to find a way to be present in the world, to announce to the world what we thought. How is it that we could talk about God? And so we did black folk theology. And black folk theology is a democratized process of call and response. It is not an empire god because an empire god, people who followed an empire god prayed that enslavement would never never end and believed that it wouldn't. Black folk theology knew that slavery, enslavement would end and just waited for the day that the jubilee would come. That was the difference. And so that black folk theology grew up in the South. It, was, it, it created the first movement in this country among African Americans. And that was a runaway movement of enslaved peoples. That was both a spiritual and a social movement. No, we're not descendants of progressive communities. Black people are not carbon copies of white liberalism. We are not descendants of a northern progressive liberal movement which was wholly material in its aspirations and expressions. It was a secular movement. Black folk descend from a socio-spiritual movement where God was at the center of our aspirations in our theology. It was a movement where we recognized that this country was in a spiritual crisis, that, that, that that's enslavement was spiritual malformation. And nothing short of a spiritual movement would change that. And, we were, and it was a movement where we understood, where we asked God to give us a clean heart, oh God, so that what we created on the outside would represent who we are in the inside. We didn't want an empire religion where people fragmented what they said they were on the inside with how they lived on the outside. We wanted to be fully present and fully whole. And that was black folk theology. And I get very upset today with the white, with the white supremacist notion that calls everybody in a movement a progressive. Stacey Abrams is not a progressive. She descends from the Southern Freedom Movement and the runaway movement of enslaved people. She's, and that's why every time she speaks, she talks about God. She's not a carbon copy of Northern liberalism, and neither am I. And to reduce black people to extensions of white Northern liberalism is to really curate white supremacy and not to understand the uniqueness of the Black Southern Freedom Movement, not Civil Rights Movement, but the Southern Freedom Movement, because our cry was more than for civil rights. When you've been dehumanized and you can't go to the bathroom and you can't, and you're being lynched and you're being uh, hemmed up into spaces that you can't. It was a cry for human dignity. It was a reassertion of the validity and the sensuality of all human beings. It was first and foremost a spiritual movement, a redemption. Amen. Let Amen. me just say one other thing course, too before please. I speak of yeah, redemption. I, I, I've been deeply troubled, and I want you, everybody, to walk with me and feel my grief about this—the immigration industrial complex. It says a lot about a country that continues an unbroken history of a captivity, the commodification, the dehumanization, the vilification, the rape, the the containment and the surveillance of black and brown bodies to fuel a predatory economic system where white people live off, off our backs. When we talk about the immigration industrial complex, that, 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 that fact gets lost. That first and foremost, after the spiritual malformation, it is a predatory ec- capitalist economic system that feeds off the containment, the captivity, the commodification, the vilification, and the dehumanization of not migrants, but black and brown migrants specifically. And when we say migrants and refuse to name the color, we have to become co-conspirators in hiding the pernicious nature of this ethnic cleansing that are going on, that's going on today. And it's a system that not only says something about capitalists and the guardians of whiteness, but it says something about us, that we are numb to the fact that children are being held in cages, and are being stolen from their families. And, and even in this Me Too moment, we're so narcissistic that we can't feel the pain of the girls and women who are being raped in those sites of terror called detention camps. What does it say that we are standing, watching, and witnessing 21st century enslavement, enslavement that continues the prison industrial complex? That's run by the same companies that ran the prison industrial complex. Microsoft just got 16. Million to do a contract. Amazon, Microsoft. Help me, Cheryl. What are the other ones? PayPal. 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 We've got the Geo Group the the G- civic
0: and uh, group Reuters. Reuters, and the, yeah. yeah.
5: This is really, this, this is really, these people are being paid billions of dollars to build a database to track black and brown migrants. Yet, the government claims not to know where they are. If they don't know where they are, what the hell are they doing with that money? Yeah. Well, so I ask the question, where are the children? Yeah. Where are the people? The DNA sampling? Yep.
2: Yes, doing DNA DNA sampling,
5: giving kids drugs. How can, you know why we're numb? Because despite our best intentions, we have internalized a culture of whiteness that says that black and brown children are not like white children, that they're enemy combatants, that they're not human beings, that they're a danger to the society and therefore should be captured for our safety. It continues the same rhetoric that was used in the war of drugs. And yet, we sit, debate, prevaricate. What will we say when the world asks each of us, where were the good people? Where were the good people? How long will we allow this to go on in our name? How long, this is ethnic cleansing, don't you get it? This is ethnic cleansing.
0: We, we're gonna we're gonna transition in just a Wait, moment. Wait, let me just say one oh, more thing. Of course, thing. love.
5: Not yet, though. Not quite yet. I invite each of you. I invite each of you to go to your to Google the UN Convention on the Pre- Prevention the UN Convention on the Prevention and the Punishment of Genocide. We think of genocide as just killing people, but there are four articles of genocide, and this country is guilty of all four. Separating the parents from the, the children from their parents. Yes, from a group. Is one of them, yeah. Uh, terror, uh, psychological and physical terror against the group. As for me and my house, we are writing a paper where we will charge America with genocide, and you must ask yourself, Where is your heart? Where is your heart that you can allow children to be drugged and put in cages and sit in our seats and not be in the streets on hunger strikes? I guess I gotta shut up No, you don't have to shut up.
0: No, 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 not at all. You know, like, who gets to sit on and talk to Mother Ruby? Oh my God, like, let's stay here all night. I was thinking when you just were saying that thing. Remember the um, a, "A Time to Kill"? Is that that is that, that Grisham book, John Grisham? The a, what? "A Time to Kill," the John Grisham book. Oh yes, right. A there's The little black yes, girl yes. is uh, raped by some drunken white boys, and in the end, and of course, this is a fictional story, but it's not a fictional story. But in the end, the white protagonist, the lawyer, ends up asking that white jury, if you will, to to, to tells the whole story. Little girl raped, beer cans thrown at her, left for yeah. dead, right? Now, close your eyes. Now, imagine she's white. Now, so this is, this is me echoing you. I cannot imagine that if there were white children in the cages. I just can't imagine if there were white children who didn't have books in school. I can't imagine if there were white children sitting in, dete- getting snatched up when they're when they are like semi-bad and arrested and handcuffed. I cannot imagine that we'd be silent. So, so, so I'm, I'm just echoing Ruby to say, what does it take for us to really have a transformation of heart to where black and brown children, indigenous children, feel to us like our children, feel to us like our children? Maybe that's a rhetorical question while we listen to some music and come back to Mama Ruby and Marianne.
2: Yes.
3: Birds flying high, you know how I feel. And I'm feeling good. (laughs) Fish in the sea, you know how I feel. River running free, you know how I feel. Blossom on the tree, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. Dragonfly out in the sun, you know what I mean, don't you know? Butterflies are having fun. is done that's what I mean and this old world is a new world and a bold world for me stars when you shine you know what I mean scent of the pot It's a new life.
0: That's Natalie Renee Perkins, our Digi-Minister. Yeah. Actor, singer, minister, badass. And Dionne McLean Freeney, who can play everything all the time, all the time. Yeah. Thank you, yeah, Natalie. So I asked for, for that song uh, uh, because the last part of this conversation is, where do we go from here? Yeah. And I thought, I thought Natalie would help us imagine in a Nina Simone way what, what it looks like when we've gone there. Oh. Come on, guys. Are you okay? Yeah. Ish, I'm okay-ish. <laughs> what, what, what is it gonna look like when we get there? And I, I'm desperate for that. I mean, I'm desperate for that. So I'm going to ask them a question, and then you're going to ask them a couple questions. And at 5 to 8, we're stopping because, damn, my staff is tired. Right, staff? Amen. Yeah, amen. So, so I want to I wanna ask both, both, both Ruby and Marianne to just think for us for a minute. Like, So where do we go from here? You know what? Where do we go from here? And Marianne and then Ruby, and then we'll kick it out there, OK?
1: I think we will go wherever we choose to go and the important part of that to me is that we, we will make that choice and every moment with every action we are choosing you're either choosing consciously or you're choosing unconsciously so we will either proactively choose a world in which all beings can thrive which is eminently possible it's not like there's not enough food. 12,000 children starve every day, but it's not like there's a dearth of food. We, we could, uh, if, if we choose, we can have an economic system, not only in this country and in this world, where all beings are given the chance to thrive. And we can, if we choose, have peace on earth. I'm not saying that can happen immediately. But if we do not make the choice, we are also choosing. And if we do not make that choice to envision the world we want... Then we are, you know, they used to say, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. We're choosing right now. If we're disengaged and not part of the process, we're also choosing, but we're choosing unconsciously. In The Course in Miracles, it says, there is no such thing as a neutral thought. Mm-hmm. Neutrality is an illusion. So we will go where we choose, where we either choose consciously
5: or choose unconsciously.
0: That's great,
1: yeah. Ruby, where do we go from here?
5: Well, I just want to phrase the question the way Martin Luther King asked the question, Mm -hmm. because it's very, very important. Where do we go from here? Do we go to community, or do we go to chaos? Or do we go from community to chaos? And we have to understand that despite the pervasive lie that we live in a society of law and order, injustice is chaos. Injustice is disorder. Where you have injustice, you cannot have order. And so the question is, our task is to combine democracy with the spiritual understanding of a beloved community. We must make those two aspirations compatible. So the first place that we must go from here is to strip our tongue bare of empire empire markings.
2: We must begin to
5: speak a spiritual language because movements that are purely transactional just create new elites. It does not change the heart of the system. So we have to have a transcendent perspective. The Declaration of Independence, although it was in an imperfect space, it was first and foremost an aspirational transcendent document that it didn't necessarily say that that's where people were, but it was an aspiration of where they wanted to go. It was transcendent. And so that we must begin to have movements. Politics, as we know it, is is merely transactional. Mm -hmm. We must, so where we go from here, we must blend the transcendent, our transcendent impulse for freedom and relationality with our aspiration for human and civil rights. And we must stop using, we must stop calling these concentration camps detention centers because you cover the brutality. You must stop saying that we, let, let me just say something, we must speak in tongues. I might be marginalized in terms of the state, but I show shame marginalized in terms of my community and people who love me and in terms of history. So you keep telling people who are told every day, when you keep saying, oh, you're marginalized, you're marginalized, you're just repeating what they're already told. What is the good news in that? So what you have to say to people, that although you might be marginalized in, with the state, you're significant in God's creation and with each other. And that is radical and revolutionary love.
0: Right. So maybe one more question and then out here. So let's just what
1: is what is revolutionary love? Well, you've got To me, there is no love that is real love that is not revolutionary. Right. Because we live in a world that is dominated by a consciousness of lovelessness. So any thought or action of love in this world is a repudiation of that which was. Any act or thought of love is a bringing forth of that new day. And love that is not revolutionary is love that is acquiescing to the loveless status quo So it's not actually love.
0: Thank you, Miriam.
1: What is revolutionary love,
5: Mama Ruby? As I said earlier, it is to see the good in others that they fail to see in themselves and to provide opportunities and a clearing for them to live into that goodness. Revolutionary love is redemptive. It is hopeful. And it can come from anger. But it has to be redemptive anger and not non-redemptive anger. So revolutionary love predicates itself on redemptive anger, which is tr- which is anger that's transformative, which anger that doesn't tear down but build up. And white supremacy breeds non-redemptive anger. It is a death-driven system that requires each of us to kill the best part of our capacity to love. It requires White supremacy demands anger, it demands hatred. Because how can you oppress someone if you love them? Right. If you love someone, it's hard to oppress them. So in order, not to, in order for a white supremacy to continue, or misogyny, or all forms of oppression to continue, you must hate the person.
2: Yeah, that's
5: right. So I would say revolutionary
0: love is liberative, transcendent, Not transactional, um, anti-oppressive, anti-racist, anti-homophobic, anti-anti-anti-Semitic, anti. anti In other words, revolutionary love is for freedom
1: for all, all the people on all the planet. Yeah. I think it's important to remember, though, that. Economic oppression in this country is not through a filter of race alone. Like when you said that wouldn't be happening for those children if they were white, that's not true. More white people are in poverty in America than black people are. A greater, greater percentage of, of, of blacks are. But many of those poor children that we're talking about living in poverty and, uh, and, and, and going to food banks every day and all that are, are white. That, that level of economic oppression I don't think that the forces of serious economic oppression in this country really care what your color is. They're, they're actually, it's not personal. Real democracy is just inconvenient to their purposes. So yeah, I think I, that I might that's have a, misspoken there because I was really trying to say
0: that I think if those kids that were in the cages were white, that they wouldn't be in the cages. That I, that yeah. I do
1: agree with and, you. And yeah. although
0: you're right, Marianne, that there are more yeah. per capita, let's say poor white people. The, the wage gap between black family and white family, the wage gap between Latino and Latino,
5: the Not earning power and the wealth gap. Yeah, but so but the, the point good. is, is that black children are disproportionately hungry.
1: I absolutely agree and with that. And that's where the that's inequality factual, comes in. Yes, yep.
5: all cho- children of all colors are hungry, but black and brown children are disproportionately hungry. That's right. hungry. absolutely. And that's what injustice is, Amen. the disproportionality.
0: So. Now, because people are just gonna be pissed off at me if we don't do it. Amanda Bertram are gonna get y'all, some of y'all in the conversation. Raise your hand. We're gonna try to do like some men, some women. Um, can we get a couple questions asked and then like see who wants to so I see right here, yeah. right here. yeah. Okay. We'll, Sean, your hand we'll is up very high. Okay. okay. Sean. I Okay, let's just let's get one honey? No, it's okay, you didn't know. That's clear. Go ahead. Hi.
1: My name is Alexandria Tava.
0: Thank you, first of all, for being here and just being brave, especially Marianne Williamson. I think I could speak for everyone here. You're giving us hope. (coughs) And with that being said, um, just quickly, after studying at Berklee College of Music, I worked in politics, and I got the pleasure of running or helping in field strategies (coughs) for Obama's first uh, presidential campaign. After that, okay. Okay. Maybe this can't be a candidate okay, kind of okay. question. Sorry,
1: sorry. Okay. We we, we, we invited, are just you...
0: clear, we invited Marianne to come and speak before she okay. announced. She's here as Marianne, our amazingness. Okay. So just for, ask her For question. everyone
5: then, how are you going to reach millennials with re- revolutionary
1: love? I believe that a lot of that is in the media and in music. That's where I was getting at. Sorry for sorry that. About that.
0: <clears throat> okay, question one. Thank you.
1: So really quick, we talked earlier with Linda Sarsour about anger yes. right? and there is a documentary out there about the anonymous people and that every part of activism does come from a little anger. So how would you answer tempering the anger, although it's there because it is a little angry to like, you know, fight back against the oppression, and still lead with love? Even though acknowledging to, to Marion, your point, sure. right, the 12 steps, you right. have to take that inventory, and it is there.
0: For, for let's, me, let them, let's let them respond, and then we'll take the other question, because right. it's late. Okay, wait, oh, just one second. We're coming to you. I'm sorry. Go.
1: For me, anger as a motivation for political activism is like white sugar. It gives you an adrenaline rush. It gives you a high, but it's false energy, and then you crash. It is, it, and it is self-indulgent. And it is a waste of the energy that we need. And it is the opposite of revolutionary love. It is the opposite of of the purification of heart that is the essence of nonviolence. That's number one. Whereas when love is the motivation, then it's, it's truly nourishing. You are giving birth to something. And also, I think a lot of the anger, not all of it, not all of it, but we must always look at ourselves. And a lot of the anger, I feel, from people who are these newly aroused activists what the hell did they think has been happening for the last 40 years while they were chronically politically disengaged and not doing anything about what was happening in this country? This did not just come out of nowhere. So I think it's kind of like sometimes when, when your man leaves or your woman leaves and you're so angry at the, the, the other person, really you're angry at yourself because you made it pretty easy. Mm-hmm. So I think that we all have to Point at other people a little bit less right now and ourselves a little bit more. Any moment, we do not have time right now to spend one moment in anger at him who shall not be named. It, it doesn't do anything. It's just an unfortunate episode in American history. Let us close it. Let us not, you know, it's not, we, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna get where we need to go by bringing him down. We're gonna get where we need to go by lifting America
5: up. Mm-hmm. But, can I speak about him? I think that all anger is not the same. I think there's redemptive anger, that I'm angry because I, love because I love justice. I think anti-anger is dangerous. Anger that roots itself in over and against something is dangerous. But I think that one can be angry. Jesus was angry in the temple. That was, he was angry because spirituality was being materialized. And so that there is redemptive anger. And I would never say to someone who, who has been pushed against the wall not to have any anger, but I would say that your anger, you must transform your anger into redemptive action and revolutionary uh, love. But you can be angry, but it cannot imitate the anger that is inherent in white supremacy.
2: I Thank you, Ruby.
1: I think this issue of different kinds of anger and also what we name anger what, what is anger to one person is just passionate conversation to another person and I think that's a real big issue for women because sometimes we just speak passionately and someone else will say well she's angry so there is moral outrage it's not born of anger, it's born of love and, um, and I think that that is isn't. I agree very much with what you said about that there are different kinds of Passionate—it's not anger, or we don't have enough words. It's like the German language versus the the English language. We don't have enough nuance in the words that we hold. There's nothing negative about yelling fire if
5: the house is burning down. Yeah, I, I wanted to say something too about what movements do. It's really important that we hear this. We're not gods. We're not here. People and movements are not gods. They're not here to replace white supremacist gods. We cannot empower anybody because our power is in ourselves. And what we do is that we walk together to find our power with and because of each other. So we, we are companions in a struggle to locate our own power that has been squashed by the forces of the empire. But when we say M, that implies that something from the outside can be brought in to, no, we can, as, as my uh, college uh, professor said at EDS, we can listen, pe- we can hear people to speech, but the power, what we have to say to people is that the power is in you. That God has given each of us agency And our responsibility is to hear each other and walk with each other to find Because even in movement, even those people who start and participate who are in the front line of movements, they're also locating their power in the process. They're locating their capacity to be fully human. So movement is a process, it's a dynamic process that moves us to a higher level of consciousness where we're able to locate the power in ourselves as well as resonate with the power in others. It harmonizes the I power with the we power and the we power with the I power.
0: Beautiful, Ruby. Let's get those other three questions that I think Amanda and Bertram are saying in the room. Thank you.
5: Hi, briefly, thank you so much. I'm here with a group. We're graduating uh, seminary, interfaith seminary, one spirit, and uh, this is the wind beneath our wings in a deep way. So thank you. I feel very honored. I saw Andrew Young the other night. Ruby Sales, thank you. Bless you, Marianne, Jackie. Absolutely. And I'm on a limb here, but I truly—it is my
3: prayer that Marianne will be able to share this message of revolutionary love on a major
5: scale. She does need support, getting supporters to be in the debate. Thank so
1: Marianne2020.com. we got that said. Yep. Thank you so
3: much. Thank you. I'd also like to echo a huge thank you, and I just want to say that, Ruby, my brain has already exploded a 100 times since you've spoken today, so thank you.
0: I refer to myself as a recovering New Ager, so please take this with the uh, spirit that's intended. I also am uh, an interfaith minister and have a great love of your work in God. Here's my question. How do we reach out to other... I'm gonna say white people, who maybe are in spiritual movements, who find themselves living more in a space of spiritual bypassing, and I don't know if you're as familiar with that term as um, I've recently become, which is saying, you know, if we just think positively, and if we just, everything's good, and love, and how do we actually still have the rich work and the spirituality
1: without falling into that trap? From a spiritual perspective, the work is on ourselves. The work is on ourselves. So in A Course in Miracles, it says only what you are not giving can be lacking in any situation. So if you want a, a, a true spiritual answer to what you just said, The Course in Miracles would say your work is to stop your judgment of those people that you just subtly mocked the way you described them. That's what the Course of Miracles would say, that you cannot, that you have no, Martin Luther King said, you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. So, but the work from a spiritual perspective and the spiritual precedes the political is, dear God, take away from me my judgment of people who don't see it the way I do. Take away my judgment of people who have the audacity to not agree with me. Take away my judgment. That is the only way. And you don't reach out. You don't reach out. You just inha- inhabit a space within yourself. And if people feel from you, you're trying to change them or making them wrong on even the most subtle level, people subconsciously feel it. And you have no morally persuasive power whatsoever. That's why it's all about, it's all about work on ourselves.
0: So that's what it's like to sit with Marianne Williamson. Like, there's the Ruby thing and there's the Marianne thing.
1: That's straight up. Well, I know, I I mean, so much of my work is what she is saying, but I know my work is limited when it's coming from a place of should in myself. Yeah, Yeah. amen. Did you want to answer that, Ruby?
5: Uh. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. It's just the funniest I know, I, moment. I know, I'm so if, weird. <laughs> I,
1: I, if, if I may say on that, just, I spoke about what you were just saying at a talk last night, actually, in Cleveland. But I know as someone who does, if, if I'm not cleared, uh, it, it's something, it's subconscious, it's unspoken, it's on an invisible level. If people feel that I'm coming from a snarky place on it, they don't hear you. So it's really interesting. I just... It's such an important thing, it's always work on ourselves, it's always work on ourselves. The revolution starts
0: here, and and Ruby said, black folks' religion, you can't take this part away.
5: The question is, and I agree, if you feel contempt from people, but I do want to just ask the question, because this is what we've got to grapple with. There is, there is, people do have feelings about those people who oppress them. You can't ask people to, to, to coddle anyone so that the oppressor can feel comfortable. And you cannot patronize people whom you love by coddling them. You have to believe in their worthiness, in their capacity to live into the highest possibilities of who they are as, as people. This movement work is challenging. Love is not coddling. Love is not permissive. I don't give you permission because I love you to keep doing the same things over and over and over again.
0: Love is and nor,
5: and nor will I, and forgiveness does not mean that I give you permission to do those things. What forgiveness means is that I will keep believing in your humanity but I do not agree with what you're doing and you will not, and I will not allow you to do it over and over and over again. And this is also I want to say to black people, there's no point of us sitting here being sanctimonious because we too have been saturated in the culture of whiteness. What does it mean for people who've been enslaved to send our sons and daughters to fight for the very people who were our enslavers and who are the parents of our pain. What does it mean? What does it mean to think that college degrees, empire degrees define us? What does it mean to believe that our worthiness has to do with what we have in the world, our material possessions? What does it mean, as Jane Weldon Johnson said? to be drunk with the wine of the world. We have, all of us have our work to do. And as Bernice Johnson Regan says, none of our hands are clean. And so the fundamental question that we are facing today, because America is in a crisis of meaning, we are in a spiritual crisis. And so the fundamental question that we must all grapple with beyond all of our fancy words beyond all of our ideological and our spiritual proclamations, the fundamental question is, church, do we want to be healed? Do we want to be healed, or do we want to continue to be dry bones? That's really the question. And, 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 being, and, and that means that we must recognize that whiteness is not a privilege. There's nothing, there's, it's not a privilege You might have economic uh, dominance, but is it a privilege to have your, to be reduced to skin and nothing more? Is it a privilege to, as a woman, to vote against yourself because your only identity is white? Is it a privilege to live in a constant state of fear that you feel that somebody wants what you have? Is it a fear to be contained in small segregated neighborhoods? and be afraid to move with freedom in the, in the expense of God's creation. Yes, you have rights that black people don't have, men have rights that women have, but patriarchy is not a privilege and white supremacy is not a privilege. It's a death rattle for the human spirit. <laughs>
0: So, so this, so I don't even. That should should be the last, last word. But, but, but nonetheless, can I, can I, can I say thank you? May may I say thank you to Marianne Williamson? Marianne Williamson, 2020.com. For the courage. Thank you. For the courage. For the chutzpah with a lot of to to step out there. Thank you. May God bless you. Thank you. Okay, we got you. That's awesome. That's awesome. I just had to, you know, get closer. And may I say thank you to you, Ruby Sales, for a life lived in the revolution for all of the doggone amazing badass smarts and courage and spirit that you have because you're your mama's daughter and your father's daughter and a product of the Southern Freedom spiritual movement for liberation and that you let us peek in on that stuff is a blessing. Thank you so much.
5: I just want to to say one thing. Can I just say one thing? You may say three things. I just want to say that I have reached, Cheryl always says I say this right. She says I say I'm 80, but I'm really 70. But I've reached three scores in 10. Is that right, Cheryl? Three scores in 10. And when you reach my age, you're getting close to the riverside. And one of the things that that makes me know that it's all right to cross over is the presence and the spirit of people such as yourselves. Thank you for giving me hope, and thank you for being my inspiration. I will always cherish this moment of hopefulness with you. Thank you so much. Kiss your cheek? Yes.
0: We're going to sing a song to send ourselves out. I need you to survive. The words are easy. If you need to go, go. If you can hold hands with your neighbor, hold hands. If you're sick, don't touch anybody. It's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. Um, Deanna I will help you get this done. Um, the words are I need you. You ready, Deanna? Oh, I love that I song. I need
4: you. You need you. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. Agree with me. We're all a part of God's body. It is God's will
2: that every
4: need be supplied. You are important to me. You are. Bye. Bye.
0: mama told me to send you away in prayer. So receive this benediction from an emotional creature. Please go in the world doing no harm, fiercely committed to justice, expecting truth and goodness. Living as though the revolution has already come because it's coming and it will be televised. Go in the world as disciples, students, of revolutionary love. Look at your neighbor and see the very best, a saw of the Holy inside each, and may peace guide our path and justice be our destination. Amen. 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 Amen.
2: Hug somebody. So glad you came.